Hello and welcome to my digital talk. My guest today is Teresa Fallon. She is the founder and director of the Center for Russia-Europe-Asia Studies in Brussels. She is concurrently a member of the Council for Security Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific, a non-resident senior fellow of the Chicago Council of on Global Affairs, and uh, adjunct professor at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. So, Teresa, welcome. And as you might guess, we have a very, very tough agenda to discuss uh, in the next 60 minutes. Um, at the center of it is, of course, the future of uh, the relations between uh, the European Union and Europe on the one side and America on the other side under Biden's administration. But before that, I would like to start with a question related to your anticipation and assessment for the U.S. foreign and security goals under Biden's administration. Well, hello. Thank you very much, Felina, for this wonderful, kind invitation. I'm delighted to be with you. This was a very important week. We saw the transition to the new Biden administration and the inauguration went smoothly. So we've seen also the picks of the Biden administration for his foreign policy. And there are a lot of familiar face, faces on the roster. So it's pretty much a safe pair of hands. Uh, we know what these people think because of their publications, uh, foreign affairs. Uh, I looked at that and uh, Jake Sullivan's paper from 2018 is one of the top most read articles. The people are looking for that uh, direction from these previous uh, writings. And so these people have been around the White House for eight years, so they have a great deal of experience. And I think that in regard to foreign policy, one of the key issues, of course, will be China. We've seen this uh, under the Trump administration and also even under the Obama administration with the pivot to Asia. So there is going to be continuing focus on this key relationship. And uh, right before the Trump administration exited, we saw the leakage of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, that was an attempt to try to uh, show the public where the strategy was, and I think most of the things in it will be followed uh, as well by the Biden administration. So I think that we will see consistency, especially in the early days. There's bipartisan support on these issues. Mm -hmm. And speaking of consistency, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there are familiar faces from previous uh, administrations. So we have uh, names from Obama, but also from the Hillary Clinton's uh, cabinet. Now, one uh, thing I would like to ask uh, related to this question is uh, regarding the idea, the view on, uh, on how the global order will be shaped by the new administration. Obviously, we saw from the very beginning that there are already first steps being made towards uh, a return of United States uh, to the multilateral institutions, take the Paris Accords on climate, take um, the return to the World Health Organization. And I would like to ask you, what is your anticipation about it? Are we going to see a kind of a Obama 3.0 uh, institutional approach when it comes to, uh, to the goal of multilateralism? And, uh, mm -hmm. or, or is it going to be a little bit different? 
I really think the world has changed a lot since the, Bi the Obama administration and the Biden administration will have to respond to the world as it is, not the world as it was under Obama. There's no way to go back in time. But I think that on day one, the very first thing to rejoin the climate, uh, Paris Climate Agreement was a key message to the world that the U.S. is back and they're interested in multilateral institutions. He also returned to the WHO. Uh, these are important signals to the international community. And he also, uh, in regard to foreign policy, one of the key issues, uh, he, he restored Radio Free Europe, the, the organization of uh, U.S. messaging uh, to make it more independent and it had really suffered uh, under the Trump administration. So he's trying to revitalize that as well. So it's it's joining the multilateral institutions and also giving a, a message through these, uh, uh, you know, through media uh, that the U.S. is back and that they will not interfere with this type of reporting. Mm -hmm. Now, as you uh, know, um, there, there is no secret and uh, Europeans have never made secret uh, out of uh, the question who the preferred candidate, presidential candidate was uh, for uh, the European capitals, but also for the European Union institutions. And I would like to focus on the question what the stakes for the USA-Europe relations and the Biden administration in the next four years are. Well, one thing is clear, uh, Biden is uh, certainly a glimmer of hope for Europe uh, to repair the transatlantic relationship, but also to repair or to relaunch uh, the, if you like, the bilateral relations uh, with uh, the key European powers. And uh, following the inauguration of uh, Biden, the European Union, but also the member states, uh, began looking back to the United States in an anticipation of improving the bilateral relations. So I would like to hear your opinion and your assessment also on how exactly this is going to, to look like. Uh, are we going to face a deep uh, institutional approach? Are we going to, for instance, witness an, a relaunch of uh, trans, uh, so TTIP, for instance, negotiations when it comes to the relations with the European Union institutions? And then on the level of member states, um, what would this stronger commitment by Biden mean? Uh, I personally think that uh, uh, the European uh, members uh, should also uh, show a clear and strong commitment towards the United States. So what is your take on all of The key issues in the transatlantic relationship, I call it the three C's, two T's and one N to help me remember. So it's climate, COVID, uh, China are the three C's. The two T's are trade and technology and N, of course, is NATO. And so I think that President Biden, uh, Biden has published many articles. We know that he's a staunch transatlanticist. He has had long-term relations with many of the leaders in Europe. And uh, he has uh, stated that he wants to have a, an alliance of democracies. Now, the question is, does Europe want to embrace an alliance of democracies? We saw with the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, which is a EU-China investment uh, agreement. Uh, it's been negotiated for over seven years and fits and, and starts, uh, but it was pretty much on the back burner for a while until the U.S.-China uh, trade negotiations were going on. And so that gave Europe a chance to arbitrage the 
the tensions between US and China, and they managed to get at their April 2019 summit a promise from Beijing that they could have never extracted before because they were having US was having tensions with China. So they were able to extract a promise that this would be concluded by December 2020. And so that um, arbitraging nothing really happened. We saw, uh, I was in Brussels at an event with Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, and the first question he took from the floor at this event in December 2019 was, what's the status of the CHI negotiations? And he said, we could never sign that because we are a developing economy. And so I really felt, you know, the, the bells were ringing in my ears that this is not going to go well, but we saw uh, nothing happened until the election of President Biden, President-elect Biden in November, and then all of a sudden there was a huge push to get it done. Also, Angela Merkel as the uh, head of the rotating uh, EU Council presidency, which was coming to an end at the end of December, it was part of her uh, idea as EU rotating, holding the position of EU rotating presidency of the council to, you know, this was going to be her, her crowning moment to have this agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, and it never really made it through. Uh, the Leipzig summit fell apart because of COVID-19. They had uh, a virtual summit, but even then they were complaining that there was no uh, traction. Nothing was really moving on that. So we only saw movement once Biden was elected. And that's, in my estimation, was because China did not want to see a united front with the US and Europe uh, trying to get a better deal from China on these trade issues. So in some responses, uh, Europeans will say, well, the US didn't um, contact us when they were negotiating TPP in Asia, for example, or they didn't consult us. But I think, uh, you know, this, that was, uh, this is a different period. We see a very um, uh, assertive uh, authoritarian regime in China. This was a horrible year. We saw uh, the new security law in Hong Kong, we saw tensions and soldiers being killed uh, on the Indian border. We saw tensions in the South China Sea. We see a trade war with Australia, even though China has signed an FTA with Australia, you know, 200% uh, uh, tariffs on wine in order to punish Australia because they had the temerity to actually ask for uh, an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. And so, you know, while they're being punished, all of these things are going on and Europe signs this deal. So the optics, I think, were very bad. I should correct myself, they didn't sign it. They agreed in principle in December. So the document still needs to be ratified by the European Parliament, but it really did send uh, an odd message, I think, to the US administration because of the US laws. They couldn't reach out. The incoming Biden administration is prohibited. There's only one president at a time. They were prohibited from communicating. So Jake Sullivan sent this kind of uh, oblique but polite uh, tweet saying we look forward to early consultation you know working together with you because obviously together they could have gotten a much better deal and so from what the it was finally published this Friday after which is kind of strange because they announced it at the end of December it was only published in January uh, 22nd and now without the annexes and th these are very key so it's kind of a drip 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 of information but also uh, is a barometer of the difficulty of getting this through because if we're not even allowed to see what's in the annexes, uh, this is problematic. And you know they're just writing things as they go along. It appears. Also, there have been rumors about side deals for both Germany and France. So the optics of this has been quite detrimental 
for other European member states. So they perceive that it's France and Germany playing above the heads of the rest of the EU member states. And it's also key to remember that this is the first big agreement since Brexit. So the UK is gone. Mm -hmm. And how does Europe look when you don't have the UK there to kind of balance France and Germany? Uh, they see Germany pretty much pushing through a policy that is designed pretty much to help German industry. If you take the next five EU member states combined, they do not equal Germany uh, trade or investment in China. So this is clearly driven by Germany and all the stars were aligned. So you have a German presidency of the European Council, you have a German president of the European Commission, you have a DG trade person who is German, you have Michael Claus, a German ambassador, pushing through with the other ambassadors. So it's been described as a German um, machine, kind of pushing this through, but there's also some blowback and some uh, from other EU member states. So they, I call it a BIPS problem. So you have Belgium, Italy, Poland, and Spain who are very unhappy with this kind of uh, France and Germany playing above the heads of both. And I, I keep bringing up France because technically um, Angela Merkel really didn't need to be in the meeting if it's an EU agreement, but she could be there at a stretch because she did hold the rotating presidency. So she could be at the meeting, but there is no reason for for, um, France, uh, for for Macron to be there at the meeting. And so the Chinese are very good at this. They, if you read the Chinese of the the, uh, the the clip, you have Xi Jinping in the center and you have Angela mm. Merkel up left, uh, Macron right, and then the EU, Ursula von der Leyen and Michel in the bottom. And that also contributes to tensions within the EU. So there's kind of stirring the pot. And I think that uh, China, played their hand extremely well, and the Europeans were played by China. So I think that if this doesn't get through, now there's you know tensions if you kind of agree in principle and then you aren't able to deliver, this also causes problems with Beijing. Mm -hmm. So the Europeans have painted themselves into a tight corner. They didn't want to wait for the Biden administration. The Biden administration was reaching out to them, let's work together, let's try to revitalize transatlantic relations. And they sent a clear message, no, <laughs> our interests come first. And I think that uh, from what I understand, you know, there are pessimists in the Biden administration on Europe and optimists, but the pessimists seem to be winning out. So it remains to be seen. There are lots of areas that they need to cooperate in, as I mentioned, those six areas. But I think that maybe the Biden administration will have, uh, have taken off the rose-colored glasses about transatlantic relations and see how Europe really wants uh, to cooperate. And also there's the, the strategic autonomy debate. Uh, this has been going on for years, and, but it doesn't, you know, the it doesn't match the, the pocketbook. What they, they pledge, you know, to do in strategic autonomy and what they actually pledge to do financially are two different things. And the other issue is it's clear for the US since China is such a, an important issue, it's not just burden sharing any longer, it will be burden shifting. And the Europeans really need to step up and invest and, and help take care of their own neighborhood. And so even though Ursula von der Leyen declared uh, December 2019 that they will be a geopolitical commission, by all accounts, it looks still looking at the world only through a, an economic lens. And I think that's problematic. I think the U.S. needs a, a Europe that's paying more attention to geopolitical issues and not just you know, the bottom line.
Mm -hmm. Well, I concur, I concur with your view on many points you've addressed. Uh, there is one major misunderstanding when it comes to the, def the definition of the European uh, Union, uh, Union's Commission as a geopolitical actor, because uh, it is obviously a geoeconomic actor, uh, one that can uh, negotiate uh, and agree on uh, major trade deals, which is a good thing, but I also do agree that in that particular case, in the case of the investment agreement with China, the timing was very, mis mis you know, unfortunate, and um, it will at some point backfire. Now, what I also anticipate is that probably one of the reasons was also the you know, the uh, changing uh, leadership uh, within Germany. Now in this year, there will be elections, uh, there will be a new German chancellor, and we still don't know whether this is going to be the uh, newly elected uh, party leader of the CDU, Armin Laschet, or is there be a kind of a, you know, um, split splitting of roles with, uh, you know, having another person within the party uh, being elected as the, as the new, uh, Chancellor of Germany, but anyway, uh, there is a lot of uh, insecurity as to what kind of, uh, you know, uh, China's policy will be uh, shaped in the future. And then a year later, also the French leadership is going to be, you know, it's going to be uh, re-elected or newly elected. And that also means, of course, as you mentioned, that the Franco-German engine of European integration um, be it a political, as a political project or also as a geographic project, uh, you know, in terms of the enlargement, uh, is, is going to be at the core of uh, decision making, uh, you know, next to the institutional uh, level. So it certainly has to be uh, considered. One interesting point that you've also mentioned was uh, regarding the transatlantic uh, relations, because you mentioned these three Cs, and then there was one, you know, N, which is uh, the NATO. Uh, now, um, given that um, the expectation is that not only the European Union, as we saw already in December, uh, and the European powers uh, are going to launch a kind of a softer approach towards China because of, a, you know, because of the necessity to cope with the COVID-19, uh, you know, crisis, with the repercussions for, for uh, the, the economy and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, the expectation is also that Biden is going probably is going to launch um, a softer approach towards China, so the Biden's administration. And the question here is, how is this going to also affect uh, the transatlantic relations? Um, there is this debate now going on, on uh, you know, strategic autonomy uh, or sovereignty. There are different uh, definitions within the European capitals, but the anticipation is that uh, Europe is going to further seek uh, to reduce uh, the dependence on America in certain key sectors and areas. Uh, and one of them is definitely the security and defense uh, uh, sector, but also in terms of technologies, trade uh, comes to my mind. So how do you how do you see this interconnection now on the one side being softer on China, you know, and you mentioned climate, multilateral institutions where China has placed itself very, very strong in the last year and is going to uh, influence the processes uh, to, to greater extent. And then on the other side, dividing lines within the transatlantic community, dividing lines and fragmentation on the on the old continent uh, along 
uh, geoeconomic and geopolitical interests by external actors, uh, including the United States. So how come, how does this all come together in your view? So I'm interested why you think, what, what, why is your impression that the Biden administration will be softer on China? Um, well, my anticipation uh, results uh, from one, of course, uh, major major factor would be, of course, if they in reintroduce certain institutional approaches towards China, because because uh, the idea is if uh, China is somehow in involved into a certain U.S.-led multilateral. A landscape uh, China would play according to certain rules and uh, you know standards um, I think that uh, this institutional approach will just not work out well for China because China is striving within within the US-led institutions we saw that with the World Trade Organization so what I think is that China is going to further penetrate US-led multilateral organizations. I am increasingly observing this process also within the UN Security Council. Uh, take the World Trade Organization. Uh, several times a World, uh, World, Trade Organiza uh, World Health Organization was not given an access even to, to, to Wuhan to, you know, to conduct uh, an inquiry into what is, has happened. Uh, we know all of that. Uh, I mean, a lot of uh, journalistic journalistic uh, reports were coming out and uh, I think that this institutional approach will actually be that is my my case why it's going to be softer on China because uh, this kind of decoupling is not only taking place on the side of United States it's very much taking place on the side of China and for China this would mean of course uh, a kind of a break uh, you know a period in which China can you know can gather uh, strength and can refocus on uh, these kind of institutions where the influence can increase and also continue with launching alternative institutes, uh, institutions and uh, organizations. That's my, my, my call. Well, I think that China has been very effective in using these multilateral institutions as well as creating other ones. Uh, we see even Europe brags about awesome Asia Asia Europe meeting it's one of the largest groups in the entire world and it doesn't contain the US but of course it contains China so we do see uh, China's growing strength in these institutions and the four-year absence really under the Trump administration it will it, it has hurt the US and I think that the Biden administration understands this and really wants to use these institutions and work with the Europeans we've seen Europe as well has lost a great deal um, in, in regard to special heading special organizations. For example, in Africa, uh, they expected to get all these votes for the special uh, chair with the UN, and in fact, China got the chair. So Europe has put a lot of aid and uh, investment into Africa, and they can't even count on them for support for these elections at the UN uh, institution. So I think it's been a huge wake up call. Uh, Europe has lost more influence in, in that response to China. So the vacuum that has been has been filled by China. When the US wasn't there, China filled that vacuum. And I think that that's a really key issue that the US has to, under the Biden administration, it has to you know work very hard to get back in and uh, influences. We saw what happened with WHO. When we really needed it, it was in tatters. And I think that uh, the US was the biggest don donor to this organization. And we saw that you don't have to necessarily pay the most 
to have the most influence because we saw how Beijing was able to um, kind of shape the narrative and and we're seeing even today is the anniversary of the announcement of uh, January 23rd is when it was finally acknowledged that there was this uh, type mm -hmm. of action, but it, of course it wasn't people to people. So it's, you know, we're really seeing what happens when these organizations fall down and don't do their job. We have international, uh, we see no end in sight. We're seeing more infections higher. We all know this. So yes, I think these institutions are key and very important. And even under uh, the Obama administration, they had more people in China monitoring these things. So I think President Biden would like to return that. It's unclear if the Chinese will allow that now. But uh, yes, I agree. But there has been an incredible backlash against Beijing due to COVID-19. Even before COVID-19 happened, we see with Pew Research that there was a, a, a decline in public perceptions towards China. With COVID-19, it's plunged even further. First, we saw mass diplomacy morph into wolf warrior diplomacy. It's kind of a thuggish type of diplomacy. China is kind of pushing uh, their weight on the stage. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, it's a uh, it's a film, a nationalistic like action film where Chinese are uh, the heroes in, in Africa. And to use that, that phrase, I mean, we've, we've seen, for example, in Sweden, they have a, an issue with a, a Chinese, uh, so it's a Swedish citizen who was abducted on holiday in Thailand because he owns a bookstore in Hong Kong and the Beijing authorities weren't happy with the books he was selling. And so since he was also a Swedish uh, citizen, this created a diplomatic problem. But what did the Chinese ambassador say in Sweden? He says, we have guns for our enemies and wine for our friends. And this type of threatening language that diplomats, Chinese diplomats are using actually really undermines, you know, how people in, in Europe perceive them. So when they could be moving ahead and, and trying to do this nice mask diplomacy, they undermine themselves by this really heavy handed thuggish diplomacy and it's here to stay. These people are playing to a domestic audience in China. They, Xi Jinping loves it and everyone expects it to continue. So I think that there is growing concern and we saw even with um, issues of supply chains, uh, the European Parliament is not so keen on this uh, comprehensive agreement on investment because there's only a fig leaf in regard to labor issues. And we know with Xinjiang, there's been growing evidence of forced mm -hmm. labor and it's unclear if any company, uh, there are many companies that have uh, shown that they've been using forced labor. Uh, you don't have to just be in Xinjiang to be using forced laborers who are of Uyghur. So we're, we're this is a key issue. And if, if Europe really does care about their values, uh, Angela Merkel said, well, it's a careful balance between values and economics. But I mean, at some point, it will cause a little economic pain. And the question is, will countries be willing to do that. We're going to see a very difficult post-COVID-19 economic landscape when we finally get this under control. And will China just gain even more because the world sees them as the, the growing economy? Uh, it's questionable really how well their economy is doing, but they are always promoting it as doing so well. And so it does attract uh, attention that way, but it's seriously unbalanced. There are a lot of internal issues that China has to deal with. And those who invest in China should you know, really pay attention to what's going on there. We see Jack Ma, one of their billionaires, mm -hmm. disappear. So this idea of the private sector in China, the, the state Chinese Communist Party fears their power. And so they are also kind of disappearing. So I think that it's not such, it's a very mixed bag. And China is very big and very important, but we're really gonna have to come up with 
better ideas on how to deal with this authoritarian regime and trade with them economically, not give up all our values and everything that we fought for for decades, uh, just because we see that China you know, is, a, is a manufacturing hub. And I also am concerned, I mean, people focus on the comprehensive agreement on investment, but uh, under the German presidency, they also uh, announced that guidelines on the Indo-Pacific. So France had come up with a strategy a couple of years previously. Germany announced guidelines on the Indo-Pacific and then the Netherlands produced their own. So the EU is working to come up with an Indo-Pacific strategy. From what I understand, they expect it to be published in March. And means also diversification away from China to help countries in that region, to help uh, with supply chains, to have clean supply chains. And, and clearly security issues, because that's a huge trade corridor that the Europeans really need uh, to main hope and, you know, is that it's maintained. Uh, the other area, long before Trump ever came to power, we saw the Europeans really not supporting the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. There was a key uh, arbitral tribunal decision back in 2013, and the Europeans were not really strongly supporting it because, of course, they were divided. Uh, China has effectively you know, carved out um, areas of influence with the 17 plus one. I know that uh, it's kind of on the back burner. But they're also just announced they're having another 17 plus one meeting. It will be virtually mm -hmm. so divide and conquer. But we've seen this kind of divide and conquer strategy, and it's worked very well in Europe. Uh, the Chinese can always count on Hungary to block something, or Greece will block a statement on human rights. So I think China has thrown spaghetti at the wall. They went with the 17 plus one. They wanted to see what would stick. They figured out which countries they can count on. And uh, you know they can use them in a very nuanced manner to kind of shape EU policy. So whether Europe likes it or not, China is a power within Europe. And we've seen you know, books the size of bricks written about Chinese economic coercion, China's uh, ability to capture elites. So China is a, you know, we're understanding more and more uh, their influence in Europe uh, through Confucius Institutes and mm -hmm. various organizations. But I think, you know, Europe really needs to do a, a dive and, and come up with a much more carefully calibrated China policy, not just one that's run business people. Mm -hmm. Um, well, based on what you've said, uh, there is obviously also the case that uh, the global system is currently in a state of transition and we don't know uh, yet uh, where this journey leads us to, right? Uh, so uh, on the one side, there, is, there are the efforts uh, by the USA to kind of uh, sustain a US-led global order based on the multilateral organizations and institutions uh, that have been thriving for the last 70 years. Now on the other side, the rise of China, we still don't know exactly um, how big China wants to become. Uh, uh, does China seek to, to be the next, uh, you know, system power? global or international power, they are obviously, and you named some examples, uh, some worrisome signals that China has uh, established for the last five, uh, seven years. Um, take the example of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, which uh, basically aims to uh, create this kind of huge connectivities via trade and transport. 
um, and energy routes uh, connecting China with the industrial heart of Europe, which is in Germany and in France, and in Holland, uh, and of course in uh, in, in, in Great Britain. Now, uh, some of these uh, routes, and you've mentioned also 17 plus 1, the initiative of China to, uh, to, to engage with uh, Central and European countries, which are increasingly becoming, you know, becoming uh, cautious um, following the COVID-19 uh, crisis. Uh, so some of these routes are, you know, uh, uh, land, land, uh, land or terrestrial connectivities, um, and obviously are meant to be an alternative to the US, uh, you know, controlled maritime routes that actually entail the most important global choke points for oil supplies, for food supplies. And we, we increasingly observe a kind of an approach which I have, uh, you know, uh, claimed that it's uh, uh, basically an approach based on becoming both uh, um, a heartland and a rimland, uh, so a, a unique situation uh, for China, uh, which uh, we haven't observed because, uh, you know, uh, United States is uh, still very much a rimland uh, country, and uh, if China is about to become this kind of, you know, combination of having both control over strategic maritime routes and uh, establishing a control in strategic you know um, terrains and realms uh, be it in the indo-pacific um, uh, you know uh, region or along terrestrial connectivities such as the eurasia uh, what does it mean for the global order what does it mean for the role of the united states and as you've also mentioned and i must conquer unfortunately i must conquer with your view that the influence and the share of european power collective european power in the world is shrinking based on many relevant factors what does it mean i mean with a decreased role by europe that would also mean of course that europe would not be a contributor to certain you know certain norms and standards and uh, you know rules of the of the game so what is your take what is the future what about the future of the global liberal order well i think the Beijing's policy on the Belt and Road Initiative was actually quite clever. I wrote a journal article about this way back in 2008, uh, how they're knitting, as you said, you know, the, the maritime and the land routes together because you're either one or the other, but China is so, you know, thinks so big and they're great strategists that they're trying to knit all of this together. So it's a very clever strategy. And I think the best strategy they ever created was convincing the Europeans that they have no strategy. You know, they keep saying, oh, we're just, we're just business people. We're just fumbling around. And most companies and countries would love to be able to do what China does. So they own, you know, they, they have, Costco, they have these giant um, shipping firms, they own the ports. I mean, it's what everyone would dream of. So it's it's really a power to be reckoned with, but it's also something that we should be very concerned about. And I think within a very short period of time, uh, Chinese investment in Europe ramped up after the 2008-2009 um, economic crisis. It went from a very, very low rate and just moved up very dramatically, it peaked in 2016, and for multiple reasons, it's been in decline since then. But still, it's enough to have coercion, but you see it went from zero to 10% of European ports. That's incredible. And plus you have battle of the bottom. We haven't even talked about Huawei yet, but um, you know this whole idea of the Arctic as well. So this is another part of their strategy, uh, the, the 
the polar silk route, this will bring China even closer to Europe and more geopolitical thinking is needed in that region. Uh, I think that we have a huge challenge on our hands. And when Europe just doesn't think about these things and it said, how can we make a good economic deal now? I mean, I think that this must have really disappointed the incoming Biden administration. And so I think now that they're in power, they're gonna to have to work hard to get the Europeans on board. But I think that the US under the Biden administration understands this is a massive uh, effort and we need allies. The US needs allies to work together. Uh, the other issue is India. You know, It's not just that the US was disappointed with the Europeans, it was also India uh, was very disappointed on Europe's stance on this. So uh, the EU you know, says a lot, but when the rhetoric meets reality, it seems you know, not very, very powerful. So I think somehow, again, we have to try to get Europe to respond. And it will be far more difficult now, especially with the new economic uh, situation we saw, even with the, the budget, um, severe cuts in a lot of these uh, spending budgets for defense issues in Europe. So they might talk about strategic autonomy, but they're really not going to pay for it. So this is a, another problem for the US. And if I was China, I would just do exactly what they're doing, keep pushing, 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 because the world is weakened uh, with COVID-19, uh, with economic dis destruction. So China sees this as a great opportunity and they're pushing very hard and they never quit. You know, if a country says we don't want Huawei, they don't say, okay, fine. No, they keep pushing and pushing and pushing until they get a yes. So they're, they're really a, a power to be reckoned with. And I think that, uh, this is of concern to me that if they, the US administration softens their line on Huawei, I think we have a real uh, difficulty because many European countries have agreed uh, not to accept it. Germany has kept clearly kept the door open on Huawei. And it's also, you know, the battle of the bottom. Where do these uh, optic cables, where do they go? Who owns them? Who controls them? So we're seeing a whole technological change. And you know, China has positioned themselves very well on this. And Europe doesn't really have the tech especially with uh, the UK leaving the EU, you know, they don't have the, they've lost 50% of their China analysts. Um, and so they have a very small bench in Europe on this and technology is not really the strength of, of members of the EU. So I think that Europe really needs to have a longer term strategy instead of just short term, you know, car industry interests. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there is a kind of a bipolarization already taking place. So if we look at the fourth industrial revolution, there are two main competitors, the United States and China. Some regional powers are trying also to catch up to, catch up to some extent, and Europe is definitely missing. But on the other side, ambitious trillion, trillions of euro worth programs were announced how to catch up with, uh, you know, with the big powers in terms of digitalization and in terms of greening of economies and in terms of decarbonization. So I would like to ask you, do you think that this is the way for the Europeans to catch up and to basically maybe to catch even the last train, if at all, uh, to how, how, how to, to be, to be a noticeable power on the global arena. Uh, what is your assessment about that? Um, and what I mean, of course, are, are the programs initiated by the European Commun uh, Commission on the European Green, uh, green Deal and also 
on the European digitalization? Do you think this is the way, or should we uh, better, better, you know, promote um, startups and private uh, entrepreneurs uh, and trying to somehow, you know, um, promote a more like bottom-up uh, process? Um, and then again, you mentioned Huawei, and in fact, prior to COVID-19, um, virus outbreak, there hasn't been almost any discussion, any serious debate as to what the potential security uh, risks or repercussions for the for for the European states would be. Uh, it was the COVID nineteen uh, crisis that was actually uh, a kind of a wake up call for European capitals to initiate a debate. And that is that is a kind of a tragic reality. That is a tragic fact that the leading the leading European capitals have not even um, you know seen a necessity to engage uh, in a in a serious debate about this issue. So uh, once again, um, it is still quite unclear how this is going to be tackled. In some member states, there is still no. <laughs> discussion about about the future of uh, you know if uh, if a 5G network is initiated and launched by Huawei, so with the help of Huawei, what are the real threats uh, you know in the future? And uh, finally, I would like to also use the opportunity because digitalization, AI are going to be also issues are also issues that as we saw last year very much linked also to disinformation and to cyber to cyber threats so we have uh, of course observed two particular countries which are very very active in that domain uh, so these are once again China on the one side but also Russia and we haven't talked about Russia so I'm using the opportunity to you know to also ask you a question uh, about your view on the future role of Russia in all this global power um, competition, what will be actually Russia's uh, Russia's um, you know role and position, because this is going to certainly affect also the balance between the the main powers. Yeah, that's a lot of questions, Valina. <laughs> but that's, they're great. They're all excellent. Um, just quickly, digitalization, I think uh, Europe needs a secret sauce. I mean, that's what everyone wants to know. They have like Horizon 2020 funds, Huawei even tapped into this. So how come they can create Booking.com, but you know, then it, it's bought by an American company. So there is this innovation in Europe, but we don't know why it doesn't really grow and, and people don't invest in it. So this is a, a real question for Europe. Uh, it's a problem. And the green, great, I, I'm all for the green, New Deal, that's fantastic. I think that's great. Uh, in regard to Huawei, yes, there has been a lot of debate going on because, for example, we saw this incredibly odd behavior. Ericsson, the head of Ericsson, because Sweden is so transparent, uh, all communications are done, uh, has to be, a journalist can ask for any SMSs or, or messages on a, on a minister's phone. And so uh, the head of Ericsson was sending messages to the trade person, uh, Swedish minister, and asking for them to rethink Huawei because they said if, if you don't allow Huawei into the Swedish market because Sweden uh, 
decided not to allow Huawei in. They, they didn't see them as a trusted vendor. And so Huawei tried to take them to court over this. But they also got the head of Ericsson, which you think, hmm, Ericsson is a competitor of Huawei. Why are they lobbying on behalf of Huawei to the Swedish government? Because Ericsson actually makes things in China and it has a small portion of the Chinese market, very small. But it's enough to get China, to get Ericsson to do the bidding of Huawei in the Swedish government. This is what China does. It asks others to do the, the lobbying for them. So it's almost like this type of corporate hostage diplomacy, like they're holding Ericsson as a hostage saying, mm, you got a nice business in China, it would be a pity if anything happened there. So you have this kind of interesting uh, exchange of phone messages with the head of Ericsson saying, if you don't let Huawei in, we, we might leave Sweden. So I think mm -hmm. the best message here is that even with this type of high level lobbying it the swedish government said no so i think it's a very positive sign that first of all they're very transparent and that even huawei who has got um ericsson by the what we would say the short and curlies uh you know they they were unable to persuade the swedish government to change so i think that huawei is a key issue also for for nato because they have made it very clear that they have to have trusted vendors members of nato have to have trusted mem you know you have to use trusted vendors for their communications or they have to uh, also create a, a separate uh, type of communication system which would obviously make it ridiculously expensive so in other words mm -hmm. huawei a good deal. So I think that um, the debate on Huawei is, is really key. And then you asked uh, about Russia. Russia is the big, the big gorilla in the room. Uh, clearly, with you know, President Putin has had a great deal of luck with high energy prices, but he's in a dry spell now. The energy prices are very low. Uh, they have been able to modernize their military uh, from the previous period, and with a very low budget, they are actually able to do a great deal. Now, with the Biden, the incoming, with the Biden administration, the the top Thing on their agenda is February 5th is the start um, uh, agreement will be coming due. So either mm -hmm. it dies the line, it's a very important uh, nuclear arms agreement. It sets 1,550 uh, nuclear uh, weapons on both sides. It has served both sides very well. And uh, there is either a one-year or five-year uh, decision on, on strengthening it. Trump administration tried to include China in all of this. Uh, and that stymied uh, the negotiations because China, of course, does not want anyone to know how many nuclear weapons that they have. And so that was unsuccessful. So the Biden administration starting just let's get this settled uh, with Russia. So that's the first thing on the agenda with the Biden administration. And I've seen um, reports that some won at one, but they've decided to go for five, five years. And I think that's a very good uh, it's very important. There are so few agreements left. Uh, the Trump administration pulled out of three uh, agreements. So there's, this is the last one left. And so it's an, it provides important guardrails. I mean, the world has enough problems right now. The last thing we need is a, uh, arms racing, especially with nuclear weapons. So I think, I hope uh, that they can get this agreed for five years, buy everyone some time, and then uh, not to link it, but to do it on a, another agreement with China. Uh, we saw with the, the Sichuan earthquake several years ago, um, you know, aid was, people were horrified, but you know, the terrible earthquake aid was coming in from around the world, but the PLA, the People's Liberation Army was like, no, 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 don't come in here. And what was discovered through open source information through 
uh, satellites. Georgetown uh, graduate students did a fantastic job. They're just using these satellites and they could see that the mountains had collapsed because they had been hollowed out and they were full of missiles. <laughs> so they could see this just with open source um, technology because when the earthquake came, these hollowed out mountains collapsed and you could see loads and loads of missiles. So all these aid workers were not allowed in because the last thing they wanted them to see were these missiles. So we really don't know how many uh, weapons China has. Uh, some have put it at 300, but it's really unclear. Uh, they have you know, very smart people. They have studied at some of the finest universities in the world. It would be naive to think that they cannot innovate. And uh, you know, if you go to MIT, Stanford, do postgraduate work there, you're going to do some incredible work when you go back to China. So I think that uh, this is a key issue. And China has made it clear they do not want to cooperate on any sort of arms agreement. So I think this also is something that Russia should be concerned about as well, because they share such a uh, long border with China. And uh, I know you have this uh, fantastic hashtag dragon bear and the Russia China relationship is something everyone is always looking at frenemies friends with benefits um, a marriage of convenience but as we know even with a marriage of convenience you have children and so uh, we're seeing today uh, where the protests uh, all across Russia uh, because of the arrest of Navalny and I don't know if you've had a chance to watch the the film he created uh, Putin's palace oh my gosh you know <laughs> <laughs> everyone should watch it everyone should watch it to see the that is the perfect reflection of uh, the realities uh, in uh, russia when it comes to the elite and the establishment so you have a perfect picture you get a perfect picture and it was very courageous of navalny to you know uh publish the to basically let the movie go online once he's on russian soil he could have published it much earlier, right? Right, and I mean, there are few people like him. I mean, yeah. a Russian prison is horrible, and he knew what he was going to face on his return, and he had this terrible poisoning, plus originally he was thrown acid and his eyes damaged, permanently damaged from that. And the fact that he survived that, many people just say, okay, I tried my best. I'll just have a nice, quiet life here in Germany, but he, while he was in Germany for the five months, he wasn't just recuperating, he actually made this incredible film. So when it was first issued, I think within the first day, 20 million people saw it. And today when I looked at it, it was about 60 million. It's incredible. Yeah, and already it's 70 million, already <laughs> there are. Meanwhile, because people continue watching the movie and that was certainly one of the triggers why so many people went on the streets uh, in this cold day uh, from uh, areas with minus 50, degrees uh, till, you know, I mean, continental European uh, Russia. So that basically everywhere there are uh, currently protests taking place. So everyone who has not watched the movie, we recommend it. <laughs> it's really, it's really available under the Navalny ch channel on YouTube. And uh, it's uh, like I said, as someone who has, uh, you know, who has uh, experience with uh, the communist Soviet communist system, originally coming from this uh, kind of uh, Soviet satellites, you know, um, atmosphere. It's absolutely authentic. What has been shown there is reflective of how the Russian elite, uh, you know, treats its own people. I mean, it has not it has nothing changed in the last thirty years. Uh, so, and this 
is something that you know makes me worry also about the future of digitalization artificial intelligence coupled with authoritarian regimes coupled with decisions by authoritarian elites you know how to grasp the power how to actually not just take a grip of the power but uh, you know um, make sure that the power states within this uh, very small circles you know so very small you know elites uh, networks and uh, that these are worrisome trends you know uh, you certainly have observed what china has been doing with uh, you know with uh, face recognition um, tools uh, being meanwhile exported to third countries uh, so there is a kind of a geopolitization also of uh, of this issue and my worry what i also address within the dragonberries what happens if there is a systemic coordination out of a common interest in this very sensitive uh, field uh, how are we going how is the west going to counter this you know this uh, systemic coordination if these countries decide for instance to export to export certain you know uh, digital tools softwares artificial intelligence uh, instruments and so on and so forth to third countries and help third countries you know establish the control over their own population well i think it was very clear that the biden administration is not going to have a reset with russia even though they want to have this coordination on the start agreement but there will not be a reset unlike the obama administration that reset pretty much failed. And I think that this is the dilemma when you, you know, President Putin has changed the, the Russian constitution. Uh, he will stay in power another 16 years. So he'll be there till he's about 83. But what do you do in this type of system? How do you find someone to replace Putin? And that, that's the, the big issue and, and question of these authoritarian regimes. We see in China as well, uh, Xi Jinping changed the constitution or the, the rules for him to be able to stay in power. And so this is the problem when, when you have these authoritarian regimes, they actually become very uh, fragile because who will who will come after them? And that that's the key issue. We even saw um, from, for the brief interregnum uh, when, uh, Putin stepped aside, there was concerns uh, about, you know, relations with the U.S. And so uh, Putin is very wary of ever handing the reins over to anybody else. And even this kind of Putin's palace, it felt like it would be a place where he could kind of hide out and have his own kind of little country. And uh, and I think as um, the woman who published uh, Putin's People talks about, you know, you have Putin makes certain decisions, but then he has a, a ring of people around him who make the other decisions. And so the middle class in Russia are pretty much fed up. And, and as we've seen, even in Krasnoyarsk, which minus 50, people are going outside and protesting. So I, I was really kind of waiting to see how many people would protest because there tends to be some apathy. A lot of people are like, oh, it's a bad system. That's just, is. there's nothing I can do about it. But the fact that people went out in minus 50 to protest speaks volumes about how unhappy they are with this system. And I was thinking about um, a recent example because it's a democracy. So there's always someone in opposition, but they want an opposition, opposition that they can control. And so this smaller region outside of Moscow, uh, they needed to have an opposition candidate um, for the person who they wanted to win the, the position. So they just chose a cleaning woman and asked her to run. She had no political background whatsoever. And 
she won by a landslide. So the fact that people voted for her just to not let the, the incumbent win is a real symptom of people's, you know, they're really fed up. And Putin's been in power for 20 years. I was based in uh, Moscow from 1998 to 2003. So I was there at the tail end of Yeltsin, and then who is Putin? And now we still know who Putin is. So I think that uh, all these years, uh, it's nice because at least, uh, you know, I, I followed him from his very early Some days. kind of continuity. <laughs> learn all these new leaders all the time. But um, I think that this is a bit of a problem. And in the Russia-China relationship, Russia is clearly, you know, the, the junior partner. And we see even China, there were reports recently published about China's influence activities within Russia. So I think that uh, he's really got a lot of on his plate. And is he up for it? Because, you know, Russia is incremental and I'm sorry, China is very incremental in their approach. And if you look at the regions that we, I'm based in Brussels, so we have uh, sometimes journalists coming in from Russia and there are meetings and the stories I hear from them about the regions. Uh, outside of Moscow, on the border areas, those are the most um, fragile. And you have a lot of growing Chinese influence activities in these regions. And so I think that there, but people in, in Russia wouldn't know about that because it's not reported in the media there. And so I think that uh, Russia has a, a great deal of concern. And, you know, even what happened in Belarus with the protests this summer, you know, we're seeing growing and a film like this uh, can actually fuel a lot of people's anger. There was like a 700 euro toilet um, bowl cleaner. So, I mean, <laughs> it's obscene. Uh, we had all, this, uh, all these bills and things like that. But one thing I was thinking about when I watched the uh, Putin's palace is that the taste of authoritarian regimes are quite similar. Um, Chinese and Russian uh, top leaders love this kind of, we call it the Louis, Louis for what? <laughs> the kind of Louis fake 14th. Remember, do you remember the, the residence of Yanukovych? <laughs> it was very similar when they... <laughs> and look what, what people found out about that. I mean, it, it really, yes. So there's, um, and I once hosted a delegation here um, uh, at our office here at Krias, and we have Chinese antiques because I lived in Beijing and we have modern furniture and the, the Chinese were so taken aback because I had visited them in their offices in Beijing and they had that kind of fake Louis XIV furniture. Um, I digress, but anyway, they were like, what? Like you live in Europe and you have Chinese antiques? So they, they were really taken aback by that. When I, because when I saw their offices, it was just all this kind of fake gold gilded over the top, really any kind of questionable taste furniture, but that's what they're attracted to. They really like that. But anyway, we digress. Um, so Russia-China relations is the key question. And there have been talks of resets and the Biden administration clearly doesn't want that. I think that they do understand that together, Russia and China, um, Kendall Taylor, uh, who is on the national security uh, part of the NSC, has written more about what I call Chinusia, the kind of China-Russia uh, together is something extremely worrying, especially in the Indo-Pacific, and we're seeing more uh, coordination with them in regards to uh, Russia has embraced Huawei, but of course their military will not be using that, they will be using their own uh, technology. But I think that this is a slim wedge and that China will, will expand their influence there. And I think they have a very clever long-term approach. The last time I was in Moscow, uh, I, I was in the hotel having breakfast and um, it was very crowded, and so this Chinese man asked if he could 
sitting across from me at the table and I said, sure, why not? And, and we started talking and he was there building the new ring, part of the new ring of the Moscow uh, Metro. So they have the Chinese, they're building things there uh, in Moscow. And I, I, this was such a departure from when I lived there. And it was just so fascinating to talk to him just by accident. So uh, you see growing Chinese influence. And um, I, I wonder how well Russia is able to to conquer this or they'll be absorbed amoeba-like slowly uh, like a frog boiling in water. So I think this is a big question and what this also means for European security. Um, okay. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. These are quite uh, relevant questions that I hope that we can also address in a future, uh, in a future digital talk. Uh, we should keep our eye definitely on that, uh, on these matters. But I will use, because we are already over the time, I will use to combine two questions coming from the, from the audience uh, as a final, as a final, so to say, as a final question to you, because both are related to trade. Now, what is your anticipation for the future of the trade relations uh, between, on the one side, between the United States and China, now under Biden? Um, are we going to proceed with, uh, I mean, are we going to witness uh, a trade war or is it going to be somehow, somehow, you know, solved or at least stabilized for the moment? But then again, what is also your anticipation for the future of uh, United States-Europe trade uh, relations because we've also observed a very turbulent period under Trump. Uh, so do you expect that the trade relations will deteriorate between United States and Europe on the other side? So these triangular relations, trade relations are very complex meanwhile. And uh, yeah, what is, what is your take on that? That's a key question. It always comes down to trade. And so I think the tariffs that the Trump administration have put in place, from what I understand, they will remain in place over the short term because it's definite leverage that the U.S. has under the new Biden administration. And so I think that uh, it's very tight, as we saw in the Senate, 50-50. So uh, the Biden administration has to be very cautious of because if he appears to be soft on China, the Republicans will be there criticizing him, saying, oh, you know, you're you're too soft on China. Um, they'll make accusations about his son. So he has very he has to be very cautious, especially in the early period where people are making perceptions about his policy to China. Everyone is watching it quite closely. And I think that he will maintain what's in place right now and then within reason, they'll have to negotiate certain things. But I think using tariffs, I think he will no longer, um, he'll have a different diplomatic approach from the Trump administration, will not be the same. Uh, people in trade say, you know, they in Europe will say that, you know, Trump, they didn't like what he said, but in some respects, he, he had a legitimate gripe. And so I think that the US uh, in regard to trying to revitalize the transatlantic relationship will lower the volume on that or, or put a lid on the pot and let it let it simmer silently or quietly on the back burner because they need there's bigger fish to fry and they they really do need to work uh, with allies and uh, create trust so i think that i expect a more diplomatic approach to europe uh softening uh the rhetoric with china but they will leave those tariffs in place and in order to get better uh, leverage in future negotiations. Mm -hmm. 
that sounds very, very realistic uh, to me as well. And I think that uh, we've been very, very open in the last 65 minutes. Uh, and I really want to thank you for your uh, very honest and uh, also what is very necessary, of course, is a critical, critical kind of, uh, you know, view on on the current um, relations. Uh, and I thank you very much for your participation in my digital talk. And I wish you also much, much, much uh, success in all your undertakings for this year. And hopefully we will uh, finally meet once again, either in Brussels or in Vienna or somewhere else, uh, why not in New Delhi, in the upcoming Raisina Dialogue. So thank you very much, Teresa. Well, Valina, thank you for the kind invitation. I wish you all the best on your work, and it was a delight to have this conversation with you. And I look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully sooner rather than later. And I wish you good health. Thank you. Thank you.